0: Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Credal Catholic. Credal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the Magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Credal Catholic. I'm joined across the table from me by the resident Cradle Catholic, that's Kevin Boschman. Kevin, hello.
1: Hello. So, you know, I was actually going to bring that up. That's an interesting point, because if I'm not mistaken, Credal Catholic is a slight play on Cradle Catholic. That is correct, yes. So really, this is my podcast. What? I, you just called me the resident Cradle Catholic.
0: Right, Cradle Catholic. Right. We're both Creedal Catholics. Okay,
1: well, yeah. we'll figure it out.
0: Yeah. Well, hello, welcome back to well, Creedal Catholics. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we uh, we're going to talk today about this article in First Things, and the article is called "How Catholicism Made Me Protestant." No, I'm oh. just kidding. It's not that article. <laughs> <laughs> this is that is an article in the October issue of 2000 or the October issue of First Things. We're not totally sure how that article got in there.
1: Right? You um, think a uh, uh- you know, it's it's an, it's a periodical of pretty high, uh, rigorous, theological quality, and it's just such a strange opinion piece to have leading. Um, it's we talked about it a little bit, but it's it doesn't really read much like an actual theological argument. It's or not. One. It's kind of like a a memorial to one's sort of faith journey, self exploration, self exploration. I think yeah. you know we talked about it a little bit, but it comes across and. And maybe it's it's a little bit harsh to judge it this way, but uh, just because of you know there's probably a word count and only had so much time, so you can't really recount all the nuances. But it reads a lot like a listing of I read this and I read this and I read this, and these things started to contradict each other. And uh, rather than kind of being able to think through it all myself, I just kind of
0: (laughs) yeah, because there are contradictions among the fathers. The only thing I can do is throw up my hands and be a Protestant.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting? And then the
0: end of it I thought was interesting too because he basically came back to falling on Luther's erroneous interpretation of how the church teaches justification mm-hmm. and decided that was why he was going to be Protestant. Right, so pretty conclusive. It's pretty clear this person doesn't understand. I, I wish him all the best, and I say this in all charity, and I hope, he, I hope he comes into the church eventually, but it's pretty clear he doesn't understand the soteriology at work in the church's teaching.
1: Right, and I'm not too familiar with the with the author and spyline on C. A. Camel Kamel. Um, and I, you're a little bit familiar with the 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 periodical that he edits, though, right? Yes, this, I. The uh, Davenant Press. Yeah. Um, and, and what's what's the background of that?
0: So the Davenant Institute is run by a guy named Bradford Littlejohn, who is a well-intentioned man by all external accounts. I don't know him personally. I know people who do know him personally. I've heard that he's nice and charitable, and I think that most of his writing comes across that way, but the Davenant Institute does a lot of work trying to, trying to prevent people from becoming Catholic, hmm. and uh, they, say, they describe it as resourcement for the Protestant tradition, so they do dig historically deep into at least as far back as the Reformers, and they, they do look at the writings of the Church Fathers a little bit, but it's really a lot of the Reformers with a special emphasis on Richard Hooker and uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli and John Calvin, especially Vermigli and Hooker. And so Brad Littlejohn and Chris Casaldo and this guy, Ansi Kamel, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, they do a lot of writing on why they're not Catholic and why no one should be Catholic and why Protestants are right. So it's, I mean, it's not surprising that he would write this piece about how Catholicism may be Protestant, but I think throughout he makes a few elementary mistakes in reaching the conclusions that he does. And like I said, I wish him well, and hopefully he'll find his way back to the church at some
1: point. Sure. I think, you know, what's what's interesting about an article like this, uh, and maybe moving moving past kind of who the author is and, and any sort of um, personal disposition the author might have, but something that I think is actually valuable in reading something like this, is it does give you an idea of where we, I think, as Catholics, are responsible for for training ourselves and identifying some of the areas maybe of misunderstanding that uh, people of this particular theological or thought bent are, are looking. And one that was really interesting to me, a line that he he writes here, and it's, it's very, it's almost flippant. Um, and I, I'd actually be interested in, in kind of seeing what really goes behind this. But he's talking about uh, some of his, you know, he went through early kind of theology, theological development, read a lot of, uh, Catholic Church documents, and then he talks about uh, some of the debates that he got into. And he's, I'll just quote straight from the article. He says, "On one occasion, a reformed professor dispensed with my arguments for transubstantiation in a matter of minutes." Yeah, what? I found that really interesting. It was because, very interesting. You know, we talked a couple episodes ago, and and uh, our episode about the the real presence, about some of the very strong arguments for transubstantiation, and it makes me wonder, you know, what what's behind that sentence? Which arguments? Uh, is he specifically talking about? It'd be interesting to know, but you know even if we never get to that answer, I think it really illustrates the importance of understanding uh, for us the 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 grounding, the theological grounding of these uh, different doctrines of the faith, and it, it provides us with the ammunition then when we encounter an article like this to be able to uh, read it with maybe some some more dispassionate uh, kind of a lens and and to be able to uh, find areas where we can. If you, if you start to have a reaction to certain lines in this uh, article, maybe it helps you identify some deficiencies in your own understanding of the faith in areas where uh, rather than running away from the faith, maybe you can run towards it and identify ways to uh, strengthen your understanding of the doctrine of the church.
0: Well said. All right. Today, we're going to, first of all, try to keep this a little bit shorter. Kevin, before we were recording, was telling me that I was, uh, what were your words, extraordinarily long-winded at times.
1: No, <laughs> never, never. I think that's what you said. I'm
0: sorry. I just get so excited about this stuff. But we're going to try to do 30 to 45 minutes. And our topic today is from the October issue of First Things, and it's a long article by George Weigel. Now, George Weigel, if you've probably heard of him if you're listening to this podcast, but he is a Catholic writer. He's written a lot of great things, several gigantic books, including the, uh, I would say probably the best biography of John Paul II. And he is or was a close friend of the, uh, the former pontiff, Pope St. John Paul II. So he has a very interesting perspective on what he writes about here. And the title of this piece is The Catholic Moment. And the subtitle or the, the description is George Weigel puts today's crisis in historical context pointing a way forward. And let me just read you the lead of this piece. And then that'll, I think, open it up for discussion here. Weigel says the current crisis in the global church is not the worst crisis in Catholic history, but it is bad enough nor is it confined to the scandals of clerical sexual abuse and malfeasant church leadership, though those scandals crystallize its meaning and implications. Today's crisis must be properly located in its distinct historical context, not to excuse, minimize, or mitigate, but in order to understand and know how to respond. Today's crisis is best understood and the remedies for it best conceived in light of the great ecclesiastical drama of the past 250 years, the drama of Catholicism and modernity. So right there he's setting up the the key to understanding the current crisis in the church as this drama between Catholicism and modernity. So Kevin, what 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 does he mean by this? What crisis in the church? I thought that as soon as I became Catholic, all of my greatest fears were assuaged and everything was perfect.
1: And is that, is <laughs> we that, all know that you didn't think that. Is, is that not true? <laughs> oh man. So really... I think that you know the crisis that he is specifically talking about he talks uh, a little bit about some of the uh, scandals of clerical sexual abuse but really what he's focusing on is uh, what Pope St John Paul II and what Benedict the 16th really brought out in their uh, pontificates about the, uh, what's the what's what what do they call it the tyranny of relativism Yes. right so that's really when we talk about modernity and specifical specifically this kind of theological or philosophical modernity. We're talking about uh, the triumph to some degree of what we would term as science, material science and empirical study over the uh, liberal arts, philosophy, theology, and how that has some very serious consequences for our worldview and had some very serious consequences for the way the church developed, I think, especially when you look at some of, uh, as George Weigel talks about, and we'll get into, uh, kind of from you know the 19th century through, especially the middle to late middle portions of the the 20th century, is what he's really getting after.
0: Yeah, so we'll talk about all those all those five acts, as George Weigel puts it, but just to, Shakespearean, right? Five indeed, acts. <laughs> yeah. The the drama between Catholicism and modernity. Um, before we dive into all those acts, though, just to make the crisis a little more concrete, he talks about the sexual abuse scandals, and he talks about clericalism, but for him, it's not an issue of clericalism. It's not an issue of homosexuality infiltrating the church. Those things uh, can play a part, mm-hmm. but for him, it's about fidelity. Right. And because it's about fidelity, that's what is wrapped up in this whole tyranny of relativism idea. So for him, it's about the, uh, what has been in the past several dramas or several acts of this drama. It's, it's a, been about a give and take between Catholicism and modernity or, a, or an inability to adequately engage modernity on the part of the church. So it's a crisis of fidelity. And so you, uh, you mentioned the sexual abuse stuff. That's what he writes about. He also talks about um, just how the church has, in some cases, uh, lost her way. Now, obviously, he's not saying that the magisterium has lost her way. It's not that the church's claims to authority are, uh, are fully moot. But there are certainly bishops who are going astray or who are at the, at the very best, uh, you know, leading, leading ambiguously and not being good and faithful pastors. So, I mean, this is actually a very pertinent discussion for today as we talk about this on October 7th, because just yesterday the Amazon Synod kicked off mm-hmm. and there are a lot of things that are going to be discussed at the Amazon Synod that have pretty big implications for the wider church. Um, I was looking at the... The uh, Instrumentum Laboris, the working document for the Amazon Synod. And I was reading, more specifically, Cardinal Walter Brenmuller, uh, who's now 91 years old. He is a, obviously a cardinal, but he's no longer a voting cardinal because he's past the age of 80. He's been a church historian his entire career, very learned and brilliant man. And he, he pin- pinpointed six problems with the Instrumentum Laboris, and I'll link to those in the show notes. But, but there are some serious problems with the way that this is approaching systematic and moral and pastoral theology. Um, I'm going to read you just a little excerpt from this, Kevin, and I want to see if yeah. you can understand what in the world the instrumental Laboris, the working document for the synod, is talking sure. about. Sure. And
1: just to frame it up just a little bit, I think so. The Amazon Synod, for any of our listeners who aren't haven't been following kind of what's been happening, it's ultimately a synod that is focused around uh, the idea of how best to catechize, uh, especially you know in the Amazon South America regions where Catholicism uh, doesn't have kind of a historical reach, and especially some of these. Uh, Indigenous South American cultures where Catholicism appears to be in such great odds with the cultural norm of those societies, right?
0: Yeah, and this is also seen as timely by viewers outside the church because we had the whole, the Amazon is burning fires all throughout Brazil, adding to pollution in the atmosphere, deforestation, uh, really sort of, not not sort of, an an ecological disaster in the past few months in the Amazon. And so the church is also very concerned about that, especially under the Francis pontificate. How do we best care for creation as stewards right. of God's creation? And so all of these, these things are wrapped up in the Amazon Synod. So this is certainly an important topic. And the concern from uh, quarters of the church who have expressed concern about the Amazon Synod is not the fact that, the, that a synod is happening to figure out how to best reach people with Christ and how to best transpose our Christianity into care for the environment. Those are good things and good questions mm-hmm. to ask. It's the ideas that are communicated in the working document and it's the leadership of the Synod itself, um, who at times in the past have, have shown, uh, at the very least, questionable theology on certain issues.
1: right? Um, and I think it's whenever you start talking about how best to reach a culture that is not necessarily as adaptable or as already in line with a lot of the cultural norms of Catholicism, I think what a lot of the lay faithful uh, kind of start to worry about or or what kind of gives them some some nervous anxiety is the question of well are you, how, is the faith going to be adapted to mm-hmm. this because that's re- the idea that the universal church is the the holder of truth and then it seems at least on some level at odds with the idea of adaptation but i think we'll probably get into that so read away and we'll see where it takes us yeah well that's we'll a, follow the argument it, as Socrates a great would say.
0: a great segue because brad Mueller points out one of his six complaints Uh, being upside-down hermeneutics, and he writes, Has the Church of Christ been put by her founder as though she was some kind of putty into the hands of bishops and popes so that they may now, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, rebuild her into an updated instrument with secular goals too? The structure of the text presents a radical U-turn from the hermeneutics of Catholic theology. The relationship between Holy Scripture and apostolic tradition on the one hand and the Church's magisterium on the other has been classically determined in such a way that revelation is fully contained in Holy Scripture and tradition. While it is the task of the magisterium, united with a sense of the faith of the whole people of God, to make authentic and infallible interpretation. Okay, so that's what that's what Brandmüller is saying. Mm-hmm. And then he cites this portion of the uh, the working document that goes so far as to claim that there could be new sources of revelation. So let me read this excerpt from the working document, and you can tell me, Kevin, if this makes any sense at all to you, because it doesn't. <laughs> it demand.
1: sounds loaded, but we'll, let's
0: let's go for this, it. I read from the working document here. Furthermore, we can say that the Amazon or another indigenous or communal territory is not only an ubi or a where, parentheses, a geographical space, but also a quid or a what, a place of meaning for faith or the experience of God in history. Thus, territory is a theological place where faith is lived and also a particular source of God's revelation, epiphanic places where the reserve of life and wisdom for the planet is manifest, a life and wisdom that speaks of God. What, what is that talking about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> not only an um, ubi or
0: a where, but also a quid or a what?
1: It. I, I don't use this term lightly, and I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'll just come out with it and say it. It sounds almost relativist. It does. It does. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't like to use that word because unless I'm pretty confident in it, because it is a word that is pretty at odds with faith. Right? I mean, the Catholic faith is not a fan of relativism, but it does sound. If you're starting to define what your experience of the church universal and what your experience of the encounter with Christ is as somehow wrapped up in where your physical location is. It's, it's almost, it's a a little bit like geographic determinism. Not exactly. I mean, geographic determinism being the it's idea like the that revenge of where geography. you <laughs> are, right. Where you are, uh, the, the geography around you shapes, uh, the way your mind works. And as such, you know, we saw, um, for example, the, the argument along geographic determinism would say that Islam emerged out of the, the deserts of Saudi Arabia because it is a u- religion that is kind of uniquely adapted to mercantilism and open spaces and uh, then, you know, things along those lines. Um, and it sounds a little bit like this in terms of trying to place Catholicism into sort of a geographic deterministic framework, not saying that you know, you can't be Catholic because you are in a particular geographic place, but that your experience of Catholicism must necessarily be different because of the place you're in. Does it sound like? Am I am I off base on that? Or?
0: No, I think you're exactly right. And, but I also I, I doubt whether or not every drafter of this document intended for that meaning to come across. This is one of the right. perils of group drafting processes. This yeah. is one of the perils of working doc, documents. You just you you don't get a chance to work out all the kinks.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite um, kind of demotivational de- posters. So, you know, those motivational posters very oh, yeah, corporate yeah. that go around you see them on the hallways and whatever perseverance. And the, so there's a guy yeah, climbing a cliff. Yeah, exactly. And then the demotivational versions of those. And um, I think one of my favorite ones is it's, it's a picture of the motivational poster with like all the hands around in the circle. <laughs> and it says teamwork because none of us is as stupid al- alone as all of us are together. It's
0: <laughs> so perfect. Yeah. It's so perfect because everyone gets a piece of the pie and then right. the, the whole pie. It's like part blackberry, blueberry, pumpkin. Chocolate, quiche. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, th- I just wanted to use that quote to illustrate kind of some of the the silliness, I guess, mm-hmm. is how I best characterize it in this instrument in laboris. Now, I'm not overly concerned about this. It's just a working document. Right, There's nothing yeah. magisterial about this. Uh, n- none of the conclusions eventually will necessarily reach any sort of final uh, synod conclusions, and even those would uh, not have magisterial authority in the way mm-hmm. that a, a council does for sure. Um, so this is not. This is not. I don't want to alarm listeners. I don't want to say that this no, is the not. church is falling apart.
1: Cause you know, there's like all kinds of articles out there already and yeah. certain circles. Yeah. I don't want to, I, I try to stay away from, I, a lot I of don't want to, I don't want to name
0: names, but there are quite a number of Catholic interlocutors who are, uh, you know, crying, not quite schism, but they're almost, almost there mm-hmm. based on this stuff. And so I, I just want to illustrate that this is, there is a Catholic moment here that George Weigel is talking about. There is a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not really any different from last year or the year before. Uh, or the year before that, this is, uh, as as Weigel puts it, this is an ongoing act in the drama between Catholicism, Catholicism and modernity. And so I think this is useful for us to talk about now because it helps us understand it, and then it helps us engage, and it helps us explain. And as we carry out our mission as Catholics, fulfilling the new evangelization, which this podcast is trying to do, this contextualization by Weigel I think is very helpful and helps us understand what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's talk about these these various acts that Weigel talks about. Um, So we're not talking about the whole history of the church. We're really talking about the church's engagement with modernity. And with that, Weigel says the first act was Pius IX. Uh, You've probably heard a lot about Pius IX. He was a very strong pope in the 19th century, was very harsh against modernism, and Weigel calls his pontificate the penultimate phase of the Reformation. So I think the the Reformation uh, came along, highlighted a lot of things, in terms of practice that were going wrong in the church, the council of Trent was convened, corrected a lot of those errors of praxis. And then one of the, one of the sort of uh, unintended side effects of the reformation was that it actually spurred a missionary impulse in the counter reformation for Catholics to go out and re evangelize the world. And that's where you get the Jesuit order, for example, Um, some of the greatest missionaries of the church have come about in the counter reformation period because the church realized it needed to um, go and fix some of those problems and go, uh, go save souls. So Pius IX was the, as Weigel says, the penultimate um, phase of that. But this is also the beginning of the church's engagement with modernism. And he characterizes it as, as Pius IX versus Voltaire. Voltaire mm-hmm. re- uh, representing the emblematic of the modernist philosophers and Pius IX holding the line against them. So lots of missionary zeal, but there's also a demise in the material authority or material wealth of the church. Um, bear in mind at this time, uh, Pius the had the papal states and this was basically where the pope was his own sovereign over uh, much of what is now modern day italy it's no longer that way it really shouldn't be that way but that's what it, that's what was happening in the 19th century so the papal states go away and then um, act two begins with the election of leo the 13th leo the 13th is expected to be kind of a maintenance pope he's an elderly guy when he's elected i think weigel says he was going to be an elderly placeholder but Leo Thirteenth had other ideas, and he goes on this tear and writes encyclical after encyclical. I'm not sure about this, but I, he's at least one of the most prolific popes ever in terms of number of encyclicals, and he might be number one. So he's written a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started to shape the church's nascent Catholic social teaching in response to modernity. Um, well,
1: especially in response to the industrial revolution yes. right so just just to put a little some dates to some of this so the first act you were talking about french revolution ish mm-hmm. really it's around the time when you know the great enlightenment philosophers are are kind of writing you mentioned voltaire as one uh, you could also um put in uh von hegel writing around this same time frame uh emmanuel kant a little bit earlier but definitely influential on this and then, you know, Act Two starting kind of, as you, you mentioned, with the election of Pope Leo, the 13th, which is in 1878. So we're right at the cusp of kind of the Industrial Revolution. And I think that's definitely why we see a lot of that social, like Catholic social teaching kind of emerging, because it's the first time we have kind of a an urban labor-based society. And the church needs to
0: engage with that Absolutely. and figure out how to help the faithful live as there's a middle class that's growing, right? Right. So yeah, Leo the Thirteenth does a lot of different things. It's now called the Leonian Revolution because he gave so much shape to the Church's Catholic social teaching. He re- did a lot to revive biblical scholarship. Uh, he declared Anglican orders null and void. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that w- that was sort of what constituted the ecumenical efforts of Leo the Thirteenth. Um, and he does a lot to to shape the Church's engagement with modernity. But it was no it was no longer. Um, I think as as I think if if I'm I'm understanding Weigel correctly. It was no longer as antagonistic as Pius IX. Was Pius IX was no, no, no to modernity. Leo the Thirteenth, I think, was um, you know, modernity's coming. We need to help the church uh, understand and help the faithful understand modernity.
1: Yeah, and I think Weigel brings this out, and you mentioned it as well, that a big part of uh, or kind of material part of this that opened up the opportunity for Leo the Thirteenth to engage in that manner was the divestment of the papal states, right? Because by removing the church from a true large political establishment, it actually freed the church to engage politically in a way that was much more disinterested. So then by by removing itself from political modernity in some sense, the church was then able to re-engage political modernity, not in a physical sense, but in a uh, intellectual and theological sense,
0: right? Exactly. And another thing with the the sort of the ending of Pius IX as he sort of ended the Counter Reformation and Leo the Thirteenth is there's a decline, I think, in the missionary zeal of the Church and a decline in the uh, evangelistic orientation of the Church because it does adopt this attitude, almost a retrenchment in the face of modernism, right? And he's, mm-hmm. we need to dig in our heels and say no, no, no to modernism. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing sometimes you do need to say no 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 to modernism but act three weigel characterizes as uh, beginning with john the Third's uh, convening of the second vatican council now a lot of people when they talk about the second vatican council they talk about the second vatican council in the context of the 60s you know the mm-hmm. uh the sexual revolution especially i think this was this was part of the same zeitgeist that the the cultural forces at work in the 60s were also the cultural forces shaping the Second Vatican Council. You know, I think there's probably some truth to that. I think that's, it's more true that the cultural forces of the era played into the interpretation of the Second Vatican Council's documents. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, what I, what I think is interesting is to think about the Second Vatican Council in the wake of World War II. Yeah, and and World War I, but World War II especially. And the Korean War. And the Korean War. Wow. And so we've, we've come through, you know, maybe the most, as, as far as number of deaths, certainly the most violent 40 year period on earth ever. Right. And the church is is thinking we need to do something about this, right? And so Leo, or not Leo, the John the twenty third in Vatican Council, in the Second Vatican Council, reinaugurates that evangelistic, outward oriented missionary zeal. Um, but perhaps at the expense of accommodating modernity a little right. bit too much.
1: I think the you know the reason for that, as you mentioned that time frame is World War One, World War Two, to some degree, the Korean War, you can you can argue an interpretation and one that I'm sympathetic to that those were, in a sense, the apex of political modernity. Mm -hmm. They were wars fought for particular visions of social progress. They were wars fought with the full efficiency of mankind. Uh, from a war materials sense, the the leveraging of the industrial, uh, what came out of the industrial revolution into a war making machine. And, and what that progress rent for us was a lack of the philosophical ideal of the purpose of man and rather an ideal of economic efficiency, whether it was in the name of national socialism or communism ideas that completely belittled the person and the individual at the expense of the state. And we get, quotes uh like stalin's about how the death of one man is a tragedy the death of millions is statistic and that is the actual intellectual framework that vatican ii is now engaging with and trying to um trying to erase from the earth i think
0: right and in so doing they think we're we're going to reestablish this missionary dynamic of the church right but again perhaps accommodate modernism a little bit too much so then in act four that's basically um Pope Saint John Paul II and Benedict XVI, who um, come in and sort of course correct a little bit, if that's if that's an accurate assessment. Yeah, I so, think it is. So Vatican II establishes the missionary impulse. Um, the the documents of Vatican II uh, establish um, that the church needs to be outward oriented like this. But then the the risk of that, especially in the post conciliar era where everyone's evaluating this in the sixties and seventies, makes the church a little bit too accommodated to modernism. So then john paul ii benedict has to sort of correct a little bit and correct some of these errors that's why for example john paul ii wrote veritatis splendor we talked about that in our encyclopedia episode a few weeks ago where this was written in what was it 94 kevin um yes so aftermath of the berlin wall end of the soviet union democracy wins uh francis fukuyama uh the uh the end of history and the church says no actually there's more to it than that it's not just democracy above all else it's christ above all else and we need to redirect point people towards this truth even if that means that it flies in the face of at least some of modernity
1: and i want to highlight this because i think um i want to be careful to make sure that we're we're not falling into the trap of vatican ii bashing and i think george weigel highlights this very well the problem was not what came out of vatican ii and what happened in vatican ii the problem was the application and the individual interpretation by certain members of the church of what came out of Vatican II. And I'll read from the article just briefly uh, what Weigel kind of talks about this. And he says In the latter years of the pontificate of Paul VI, a double edged counterproposal came into play. According to that counterproposal, the church should critically engage cultural, economic, social, and political modernity in public debate about the questions of meaning and value that would decide the human future. It should do so in two ways through evangelism which responded to modernity's quest for meaning and on the basis of its social doctrine, which might provide a more secure foundation for modernity's aspirations to liberty, equality, prosperity, and solidarity. And I think what happened after Vatican II with some of the misplaced application was on that social doctrine side. Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's a good clarification to make. We are not Vatican II bashing because Vatican II is authoritative and it is church teaching and those documents are dogmatic. So we're not bashing it at all. But what we can criticize, I think, is the way in which those documents are subsequently interpreted by uh, by lay Catholics and by clerics, right? Um, and that can have unintended side effects, especially if you're interpreting them in, in accordance with the spirit of the age, right? And well, so, and
1: especially if you're interpreting them without having read them, which is often the case. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's also very true. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead and read the Vatican II documents before you claim to... Uh, be acting in accordance with Vatican II when you are uh, you know making liturgical revisions for example. And you're gonna or, have a great
1: time reading them. They're they're beautiful. They are they really
0: are. They really are. Um okay so Act four, Benedict the sixteenth, Pope St. John Paul II, and then Weigel says we're now in Act five. And I d I don't know I don't know if I missed it, Kevin, but I didn't find a specific point at which we transition from Act Four to Act Five.
1: No, I don't think he really called out a stark Kind of historical timeline, kind of divide the way uh, the way he does with a lot of the other ones. He kind of frames it more around this, uh, the intellectual assault on Catholicism that um, kind of emerged coming uh, through, especially in Benedict's uh, pontificate. I think.
0: Right, right. So clearly, the Francis pontificate is in Act Five. He says it's the one in which we're living today, and he also includes in Act Five the sex abuse crisis started in two thousand two in Boston when the uh, the Boston. Boston Globe reporters uncovered sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Boston. Obviously, last year, we're still we're still living through this, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. Th- over 300 priests involved. Um, you know, bishops, high prelates in the church, at best, you know, turning a blind eye to this stuff. At worst, actively covering it up and facilitating it. So these things have really, really marred the church's image. And I, Weigel said, it is difficult to imagine a more severe counter-witness to the truth of Christ than the abuse of innocent young people by those claiming to speak in Christ's name.
1: Right, and that's, um, I, I, not to drag us backwards, but I think that really is what he's highlighting as the start of Act 5, is the emergence of these reports, because it does, in a lot of ways, provide the greatest ammunition for modernity, right? Because mm-hmm. you look at this, and as you said, these are defenseless people. Uh, you can't really think of a more morally depraved, Uh, Act than to uh, to attack or or abuse someone who is completely defenseless, and that opened the door in a lot of ways for modernity to have, what, for one of one of the first times, were truly just and reasonable criticisms of the actions of the church, which led to now this kind of modern crisis of, uh, now the church has to answer those claims of how its theology and how it can claim to be the moral arbiter, uh, for for faith and for morals if than people acting in the name of the church. People essentially acting the highest levels in the name of the church uh, seem to have failed the, the the very people who the church is most responsible for uh, for protecting.
0: Yeah, it's been absolutely devastating. I mean, two quick anecdotes here. Bishop Barron did a Reddit Ask Me Anything at the end of September, and uh, I just popped on there briefly while he was in the middle of it. And at the time, at least I don't know how it ended up by the when it was all said and done, but at the time, one of the most upvoted comments was one where... Uh, One where the commentator basically said, you know, why should we listen to you when you're a bunch of child abusers? Mm -hmm. Um, And second, someone close to me who's a Protestant recently said that he would rather be atheist than Catholic because Catholics are a bunch of sexual abusers. So uh, this has really, really damaged the church's witness. And I think it's really impossible to overstate exactly how much it's damaged the church's witness. And it's a mistake to just uh, point uh, point to any singular cause as being at root other than fidelity. This right. is this is a lack of faithfulness to Christ and his church. That's why this stuff is happening.
1: And it's such a difficult topic to engage because so many people are so hurt and affected by it, right? And so it's hard, especially once comments like that are made, uh, you you could you could analyze them and, and view them as ad hominem attacks, which they are. They're not logically consistent. But on the same level, even if you are not uh, going to engage with the ad hominem attack itself because to do so would be logically fruitless, you still have to engage with the fact of the abuse and you have to engage with the reality that a lot of people are very deeply hurt and continue to hurt because of this. And the church has a very important role and responsibility to rectify that. And in order for it to reclaim or to claim its moral authority, um, regardless of the logic of the argumentation, because the church, well, the fullness of logic and truth has so so many more elements to it, it does have a responsibility to answer those uh, emotional and um, kind of personal claims as well, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's all well and good to say you're talking about practice, we're talking about doctrine, but doctrine does inform practice, right? And it does, it does address your doctrine if no one's believing it well enough to act in accordance with it. So it really is a serious crisis. And uh, it's not to say that it's not to say that it is um, a devastating blow that kills the church, because we know the church uh, will, will not be killed. But it does mean that in this Act 5, it's very important for clerics and laypeople alike to respond to this. And Weigel suggests that we respond to this by being what he calls a culture-converting counterculture, offering skeptics a path beyond doubt, relativists a path beyond the will to power, and nihilists a path beyond emptiness. The core of that offer is friendship with Jesus Christ, whom the Catholic Church proclaims as the answer to the question that is every human life. And then he lists these five truths that the church also proposes in answer to modernity. So so the church does not condemn everything in modernity, but the church offers useful correctives to the many of the ideas behind modernity so that it can, in his words, put it on firmer foundations. But actually, real quick, before we talk about those five truths, I want to mention... Weigel draws comparisons to potentially the church being devastated by lawsuits and bankrupted to Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. And I thought that was a really interesting analogy. Oftentimes we fear, you know, what if the church is sued? What if the church loses all her money? Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? God can act Mm -hmm. in those things and God might need to act by, by making a smaller, purer, more bankrupt church, smaller, purer, <laughs> and poorer. Physically bankrupt,
1: physically <laughs> yes. bankrupt, but morally rich. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely.
0: Uh, and so, so that I think was an interesting comparison to an Old Testament, an Old Testament illustration. But what are these five truths, Kevin, that the church proposes to modernity?
1: Right. So the first one is that every human being has inherent dignity and value, and I think that's a good one because you're not going to see that in an argu- in Most arguments empirical arguments of modernity, right? And he highlighted a couple of things like the will to power. There's no inherent dignity in a human being when you're operating in a Nietzschean framework of will to power. Right. It's all about how does the superior individual uh manage to use and acquire power and then use it to satisfy uh, his or her own personal desires. But this idea every human had every human being has inherent dignity and value of course deriving from uh the dignity that Christ gives him simply by being a, a person in his creation and uh, one of his chosen ones
0: and uh the another part where there is every human being so yes. this is not uh this is not simply for the able but also for the disabled not simply for the uh middle-aged and young men and women but also for the infants and the child and utero and the person at the end of their life who has lost most of their mental faculties right every and human being
1: the criminal the murder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, every human. You don't, you being, don't
0: forfeit your uh, your, dignity. your dignity because yeah.
1: of what you have done. It's something that's been gifted to you. Uh, second is the reflection on this dignity discloses moral obligations. So I think what uh, what Weigel's getting at there, what the church is getting at with that, is that the fact that you have dignity obligates you to comport your life in a certain moral manner.
0: Yes, and the fact that other people have dignity requires that as well and so this isn't because con- other people have dignity we can't go rob or right. kill them
1: and this is in contrast in a lot of ways to the modern language of rights so rights the concept of rights as they are manifest in modern society are something that grew out of the Enlightenment and the I th- the rights are good I would say that I think there are there are certain rights that uh, certainly provide very good things and the catholic church supports especially human rights but the problem with our modern language of rights is that it oftentimes precludes duty right because it becomes the um it becomes an argument rather than about what is morally good or morally right it's about what do you have a right to it's i'm going to do this or i I think free speech is a good example and a lot of times we come to this argumentation of Uh, Just because you have the right to say something doesn't make it right to say it, and that implies a sort of obligation. So uh, in this way, the church sets itself up in contrast on some level to the modern language of rights and the moral relativism that sometimes comes out of the language of rights, I think.
0: Yeah, it's a great example because in the free speech paradigm, for example, the, the whole reason we have free speech is that so people can be empowered to say the good. But that principle of free speech gets corrupted when people say horrible things under the protective banner of free speech. Instead if we if we talk about an obligation to speak the good, then we have an entire different paradigm for understanding how we say what we say and when we say it. Mm-hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. It does it the the language of duties entails much more about our common understanding of our humanity and the inherent value and dignity of people than does simply a language of rights. And I recommend the work of legal philosopher and Catholic Mary Ann Glendon uh, on this. Mm, yeah, she, very she's, good. she's written a lot on on rights versus duties.
1: So that brings us to number three, uh, the third truth, which is the human person has a moral nature. So I think we talked about this at some length in our uh, conversation on Veritas Splendor and what that moral nature, uh, as a human being, uh, kind of implies. But I um, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Did you, do you want to talk more about that, or?
0: Well, I, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. But mm-hmm. but we have we have desires that are not simply met most easily by feeding ourselves and living in nice houses and having nice things. Um, That speaks to the moral aspect of our humanity. Um, We have desires that are not merely carnal. Uh, We're not mere animals. We're between beasts and God, as the ethicist Gilbert Mylander says. And so this entails more for our self-understanding and our understanding of
1: each other. Exactly. So that brings us to number four, which I think when when I read this one, it's going to uh, at first sound pretty obvious. But it forces an examination that I think is difficult at times. And it's the good life is not measured primarily in financial terms.
0: Yeah. Very good. Very good point. Right. Because that (laughs) flies in the face of
1: modern economics. Yeah, exactly. It flies right in the face of Karl Marx. And, you know, people look and one of the interesting things about Karl Marx, right? The philosopher of communism, especially in dialectic, uh, material dialectic, uh, is a lot of people dismiss him as being completely irrelevant to our current state of affairs because especially capitalism you know people can say oh well capitalism is trying so communism is irrelevant but karl marx said a lot more uh than than just about communism he was the philosopher who i think best identified the fundamental economic nature of our modern society Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because for a society, especially the Western society that rejects him, we're still so steeped in the idea. We are. I mean, the idea again, that I mean, how much time do people talk about, um, you know, the job they have and immediately people, you start judging and thinking, well, how much money do they make? Or we talk about keeping up with, you know, your neighbors Mm -hmm. and they get a new car. And even though, you know, people will will speak of the platitudes of, um, you know, you're not defined, your worth is not defined by what you have. Or I, people talk about, I'd rather have you know, memories and material objects and I think it really I, I, I can say this certainly for myself is this very simple statement forces a very serious self-reflection because even if you truly believe in your heart that your worth is not defined by your material value this our our culture and our society is so steeped in that that it can be hard to pull yourself away from it I, I think and and it's an act. It takes a conscious act of will to truly divorce yourself from that idea.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And you mentioned Marx. I would just say, you know, Milton Friedman as well. This is sure. not this is not a simply anti-communist idea. This is really an uh, anti-economic systems of the world idea. Which right. is not to say that the church opposes capitalism by any means, but to say that capitalism is not sufficient. Communism, right. communism is not sufficient. You cannot design a utopia based on secular economic ideas alone.
1: Right, and I think. You know, the challenge and, and a challenge I try to maintain for myself is something like this. When you see a homeless person on this street, is the first thought that crosses your mind crosses your mind, Wow, that's the face of Jesus on this street? Mm-hmm. Or is it, Wow, I'm glad that my life is better and I'm probably better because I have more money than that person?
0: Yeah, it's 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 the second, I'll be honest. Yeah. It's the second. Or it's you know, why can't that person
1: find a way to dig themselves out? Find a way to dig that? themselves out, yeah.
0: Um, I try, to, I try to stop those thoughts, but that, that's our first impulse, right? It is. That's it. You know, and, um, you know, we, we, those of us who have money sit in this position of privilege and it's very easy for us to buy in even subconsciously to that idea that prosperity is measured primarily, if not totally, in economic terms. So that's the fourth truth, um, that it's not. What's the fifth truth, Kevin?
1: Yep, so the fifth one kind of builds on that. So it's the idea, uh, as Weigel presents, that culture cannot appeal to our basis instincts. Uh, and you know i'll actually just read kind of his paragraph here so he says finally there is a truth that a culture that appeals to the basis of our instincts be it high culture or popular culture damages the human ecology necessary to make political modernity work for a degraded and debased culture will produce a vulgarized political culture in which base instincts predominate so i think it's really his way of saying and the church's way of saying that any sort of political structure again has to be informed by morality and a truly human morality that is not centered around our carnal desires, but around our spiritual needs. Uh, otherwise, the whole concept of free democracy, political dem- modernity, however you want to term it, is is destined to fail because it will be simply material and cannot actually um, in any way fulfill our spiritual needs.
0: You know, one thing I was thinking about as I read these five truths is the work of Charles or Charlie Camosi, who we interviewed on Vernacular podcast a few months ago. He is a a theologian, moral theologian at Fordham university, but he has talked and written a lot about how we basically recover these truths to create a better society. And he writes in his most recent, recent book about countering throwaway culture through a Mm -hmm. culture of engagement. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend the book because he, he approaches specific policy issues, which Weigel doesn't do, but specific policy issues from the perspective of church teaching and moral theology. And, and examines how we incorporate these ideas into all aspects of our, of our um, public life. So I think that's really good. And I just want to sort of recap because we've talked about a lot of stuff here and we're, we're almost at 45 minutes. So I want to wrap up and not bust time since Kevin says I'm extraordinarily <laughs> long-winded.
1: Well, and because our readers certainly, you know, they can access this article. So go on First yes. Things, it's on there. Uh, if you have already been on First Things a couple of times and read some articles, you might hit the paywall because you might've read all your free articles for the month or however long it is. But, um, you know, if you haven't, then uh, you'll probably put a link in the show notes, right? Yes, the I will, article. for sure. Perfect. Yeah,
0: I highly recommend you read it. If you have hit your paywall, maybe it's time. To it's just, time to pay. Go ahead and subscribe. Because you're
1: obviously getting something good out of Get it. Get a subscription so. to First Things.
0: Um, <laughs> okay, so let's recap this a little bit, Kevin. The church is in crisis. This is not the first time the church has been in crisis. This is not the worst crisis the church has ever, has ever faced, but it is still a crisis indeed. If we're going to understand the makings of this crisis and we're going to understand how the church will emerge from this crisis, we have to understand the conditions and the process that led to this crisis. To do that, Weigel uses a five-act framework. He says Act 1 is basically from the French Revolution through the death of Pius IX. This is the penultimate phase of the Counter-Reformation. After that, uh, Leo Thirteenth is elected. He is thought to be uh, an elderly placeholder, but decides instead to go on a tear and start revitalizing Catholic social teaching, Catholic social doctrine, writing a lot about economics, helping the faithful engage with the ideas in the industrial revolution. Um, and then in the 20th century, we get World War I and World War II, and the church, um, you, know, weathers that, but a lot of her faithful are killed. Um, she is in the world at a time when six million Jews are killed in the Holocaust. Uh, this is a very, very difficult time to be be alive, I think, you know, mm-hmm. to be a human being. This is a very difficult thing. Um, John the twenty third inaugurates Act Three with the Second Vatican Council. This sort of re-energizes the church's missionary zeal, and he says, we're going to go and engage modernity fully so that we can convert modernity. Um, the, his opening address was called the Joy of Mother Church Rejoices, mm-hmm. and his idea was, we have this, you know, pearl of great price. We're going to go share it with the world. Unfortunately, as wonderful as as Vatican II was, the post-conciliar, that is the post-council era of the 60s and 70s and 80s, and really just the super modernity-saturated era, interpreted those documents, and many people in the church interpreted those documents in the wrong light, and that led to a, a sort of, um, not a retrenchment with modernity, but but a, an accommodation of modernity. So the church accommodates modernity too much. There's intellectual duplicity among the, the faithful, both lay and clerics. And this leads, you know, this directly produces the conditions that lead to our current crisis of fidelity, where, um, you know, cardinals, prelates, bishops, clerics are disbelieving church teaching, publicly proclaiming things against church teaching, um, sexually abusing young people and children. This is the crisis of fidelity that's gotten us to here. And so the the sort of corrective was under Pope Saint John Paul II and Benedict, and they tried to remind the faithful of the truths of the church even despite this or even in the midst of this engagement. And now we're in act five and this is um, perhaps the ultimate act in this engagement with modernity, but, but Weigel's arguing that the church's mission now is to incorporate those five truths and to remind modernity and modern people what the human being is all about and how we can best conceptualize and think of and encounter and engage the human being to set our project of modernity on firmer foundations for the future. Did I capture that well, Kevin?
1: I think that's a great summary.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Credal Catholic. We'll be back again soon with another topic. If you have suggestions for topics, things you want us to talk about, please do reach out Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. We were just talking last night. We have some exciting guests coming on and we're developing a guest potential guest list of some people to ask about coming on Credal Catholic. So if you have an an idea for one of those persons perhaps, we could also reach out to them and get them on the show. So Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com can also find us at vernacular pod at what's your is it km
1: bochemin km bochemin
0: at km Boscheman on twitter and facebook.com slash vernacular podcast or instagram at vernacular pod all right for creedal catholic i'm zach i'm kevin peace god, god bless you